Hello and welcome to Impressions of America. I'm Simon and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hey Simon. Today we are joined by author John Grombeck Tedesco, who's an Associate Professor of American Studies at Ramapo College of New Jersey, and whose new book, Operation Pedro Pan, The Migration of Unaccompanied Children from Castro's Cuba, is the subject of today's show. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. John, can you start today's show by introducing this book to our audience and giving us a quick summary of what it's about? Absolutely. Um, So this event known as Operation Pedro Pan uh, was the movement of over 14,000 Cuban children to the United States following the Cuban Revolution uh, of 1959. Essentially, parents were so gripped by fear of what the new state under Fidel Castro would bring that they put their children on airplanes and ships and sent them to Miami. Operation Pedro Pan is the colloquial term for the unaccompanied Cuban children's program, which was sponsored by the US government, uh, the Catholic Diocese of Miami and Florida uh, child welfare agencies. And so this book is about those children and their travels to the United States and the kind of larger historical frameworks to understand how this came to be. It was the Cold War, the Catholic Church was changing, revolution in Cuba was changing US-Cuban relations. And uh, so the book is about those stories, but also then how that history helps influence Cuban-American politics and identity today in the United States, because it's kind of an exceptional immigrant group when you look at various groups in the US in terms of the political power Cuban Americans have had in Florida. So this isn't the, um, the first book you've written on America, Cuba history with your, your previous book, Cuba, the United States and the cultures of the transitional left 1930 to 1975 being released in 2017. Before we get into your current work, can you just tell, tell us how you came to study the subject and, and write about Cuba during this time? Yeah. Um, so I think it would start when I was, much younger in my twenties living in Spain. And I got really interested in the history of of the Spanish empire, including uh, the Spanish empire in in the Americas. And so I decided to go back to graduate school uh, in the United States and wanted to study something that connected to my original field of study, American studies, connect to that, but also do something with Latin America. And I went to the University of, uh, of Texas at Austin, which has a very strong Latin American studies program. And there were people there, students and, and professors that um, had studied Cuba. And so I kind of got into the subject matter of Cuba. I went to Cuba and absolutely fell in love with it and decided I wanted to study something for my PhD that connected the United States Um, to Cuban history. And so that first book on the transnational left really looks at the impact of Cuban politics between the 1930s and 1960s, the impact of those politics on the American left. So on kind of artists and dissidents and um, also uh, uh, people that were struggling for not only um, economic equality, but also racial equality uh, feminists. And so the impact of Cuban politics on, on um, American um, d- dissidents and the American left at that time. So part of, through that study, I, I came across this event known as Operation Pedro Pan and got really interested in it, although there wasn't really room in that book for this topic. So I sort of uh, shelved the topic and then returned to it after my first book and have worked on this current book uh, off and on for approximately seven years. So for those of us who aren't scholars of Cuban history, can you set the scene for your new book and tell us about what happened in Cuba during the 1950s up to and including the 1959 revolution? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, following World War II, Cuban politics uh, kind of get, they get dicey. There's a series of presidents who are ineffective. There is uh, a Cuban population that is increasingly uh, distrustful and unhappy with the Cuban status quo. There is spreading inequality um, between the, the wealthy and, and particularly rural uh, Cuban residents. And so all of this comes to a head in, in the 1950s into a revolution. Um, the country is led by a dictator, Fulgencio Batista, and there's a revolutionary movement that's afoot. And Fidel Castro uh, represents one element of that revolution. But by 1959, he is, uh, uh, is successful and becomes the lead um, becomes the leader of, of the revolution and uh, comes into Havana in January of 1959 and, and kicks out Batista. And so Cuba is sort of united under this revolutionary uh, political euphoria uh, led by Fidel Castro. And at the time, Fidel Castro is not talking about socialism or communism. He's promising uh, you know, a democratic transition. Really the enemy was Fulgencio Batista. But quickly, um, the Castro program becomes anti-American and he invites Soviet dignitaries to come to Havana and uh, Cuba makes treaties with Moscow and this quickly makes him fall out of favor with uh, Washington DC. And so plans are put in place even during the Eisenhower administration to bring down Fidel Castro. Things are changing very quickly in 1959, 1960, and 1961 in Cuba. And there is an anti-Castro movement uh, not long after Castro becomes leader. Part of that movement involves propaganda. And there's a lot of propaganda that is coming from the CIA, but that's also coming from anti-Castro Cubans. And some of that propaganda focuses on the family. And there are uh, charges that Fidel Castro is gonna take uh, children away from their parents and send them to Moscow for communist indoctrination. Uh, you have to also know at this time, there, it, it's a time of momentous change. Uh, Fidel Castro is closing the schools in 1961 in order to reevaluate um, how to put the revolution in uh, the school system. He closes parochial schools, private schools. So a lot of these children that come as part of Operation Pedro Pan, their families learned about this program through uh, ca the Catholic school system, um, but through private schools. Uh, the other thing that's happening is Fidel Castro sets his sights on the Catholic Church of Cuba. In the beginning, he is trying to work with the church to have this revolution, to have this new government, but it, it quickly falls apart. The Vatican, the Cuban Catholic Church is not going to um, work with anyone that is being sort of framed as a socialist or anyone that's working closely with Moscow. And so, the, so he goes after the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic Church falls apart uh, by 1960 and 1961. So these are all, all these different signposts that are, are, are making parents very nervous. And so they, they send their, their kids to, to the United States thinking that this is gonna be short-lived. You know, there's no way Castro is gonna stay in power. The U.S. might invade or, you know, there's going to be a counter-revolution and, you know, these parents will be reunited with their children in short order. Matter of weeks, maybe a matter of months. And of course, that tragically doesn't end up being true for most of these kids. These kids are, many of them are separated from their parents for a period of two or three years, some of them for more than several years. And for a small portion of these children, they never saw their parents again. It quickly became, I mean, what one of the things that happens, and you know, we're in this moment of, of remembering the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago, the Cuban Missile Crisis effectively shut down airspace between Cuba and the United States. So any kind of reunification that was happening with flights for parents and children stopped abruptly, and parents would have to wait to get to the United States or go through a third country like Mexico or Spain but the bureaucracy got much more complicated. So those reunifications took a while to happen. 
I just wanted to know um, what kinds of people were sending their kids to America because um, I do get the sense that these were sort of middle class people from sort of wealthier backgrounds, perhaps people who had been who had more stock in the Batista regime or people who uh, were revolutionaries but didn't want the socialist revolution that um, Castro was bringing? It's a great question. Yeah, I mean, you know, the revolution was immensely popular initially and the, the country united under it. They wanted Batista gone. But then, as, as your question points out, factions of those anti-Batista folks um, begin uh, disliking uh, Castro. And it's hard to it's hard to generalize the Pedro Pans. I would say that many of them were from middle to upper class backgrounds, overwhelmingly identified as white. I mean, one of the things that the book points out is part of the assimilation process to America. These kids who were Cuban and the first generation refugees, these children are part of 250,000 Cubans that are coming to the United States between 1959 and 1962. It's really the first kind of major refugee crisis from a single country that the United States will face. And this, by the way, is the largest group of unaccompanied children to come to the United States until uh, the Obama administration. Um, but overwhelmingly, these are middle upper class Cubans. Uh, that racially are white in Cuba, but they show up to the United States. And in the American racial system, there is no Hispanic or Latino yet. Um, and so Cubans that are white and privileged in Cuba, in the United States now have to come to terms with a different racial system that doesn't quite know what to do with Cubans um, in the kind of black white uh, uh, dichotomy that largely structured American racial history. And so, um, you know, people who have privilege and, and sort of access to white spaces in Cuba, all of a sudden now face this kind of middle ground where sometimes, you know, they face, uh, you know, racist, um, racist hatred in the US, but also have access to, to, to white spaces. So like Cuban children, for example, uh, there will be, you know, Pedro Pans that, that say, you know, they remember, of, you know, having to go to the back of the bus in, in the South. Because remember, Florida is a Southern state. And this is at the time when the civil rights movement is kind of taking off. And so as was custom in the South, African-Americans had to go to the back of the bus in most Southern uh, towns. And so Cubans faced some of that racism, some Cubans did, but then these children also went to white schools. And so the whole kind of like, um, you know, assimilating to this new environment um, was, is part of what I try to tease out in the book, that Florida itself and America is changing in the civil rights movement and Cubans pose this kind of opportunity for Americans to confront you know, the communist red menace. And part of that test of American democracy is to absorb these sort of racial others uh, into their towns and communities because these Cubans eventually are resettled, Pedro Pans included. Some of these kids went to Montana, went to Iowa, went to California. They were resettled outside of Miami, outside of Florida. Um, and so it becomes a kind of test of, of American democratic strength. Uh, in the Cold War. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the educational system changes that you talked about earlier and how that kind of was implemented and how that, that grew the, the fear within um, the Cuban people and, and, and the need for them to, to have their children um, leave the country. Yeah. So Castro comes into power in 1959. And what immediately has to happen is a complete reshuffling of the, the, the Cuban government bureaucracy, but also uh, society. And so this means the nationalization of industries and land that had been owned, for instance, by American companies. It also means the closing of schools in order to rewrite pedagogy in a revolutionary light. It means minimizing private, well, actually, eradicating private education and making it state education. 
And, and so the, he closes the schools in 1961, but he's also, remember, part of the revolutionary politics is we are going to educate Cubans, right? It's the state is going to take care of everyday families. So, and, and part of that is, you know, like literacy programs, right? Going out to the countryside of Cuba and putting schools in places that didn't have schools, right? Educating peasants, farmers, uh, and making good on those revolutionary promises. But in the cities, it means also closing those schools and, you know, injecting the education with, you know, Jose Marti and Karl Marx and throwing out any mention of, you know, Jesus or the Virgin Mary. And, uh, and so parents get, get scared um, and, and they also learn about this opportunity. The interesting thing about this is, it, 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 from a U.S. perspective, there still needs to be a legal way to transport children. So parents were able to put their kids on airplanes. They were sponsoring airlines like KLM and Pan Am, Pan American Airways, that made seats available for unaccompanied children. Those children originally were going to come as students. So the other part of the story is that the Catholic Diocese of Miami there's a new priest that shows up, an Irish priest named Brian Walsh, who's recently located to Miami in the 1950s. Miami is just becoming its own diocese, all right? And, and so Brian Walsh takes up this cause of unaccompanied children, Cuban children in Miami. So he works with the State Department to, make, to get these kids to the US legally. Originally, the State Department says they can come as students. We'll, we'll process them with student visas. However, the children that first show up don't have those visas. And they're unable to do this because in January of 1961, the US embassy closes in Cuba. And so you can't get those visas. So then the State Department tells Brian uh, Monsignor Walsh that he can issue visa waivers. Essentially, it's like a carte blanche to be able to give this paperwork to families and children in Cuba that can then show up and legally be processed in the United States with a visa waiver. So he has like unlimited capacity to do this. So these kids are coming with visa waivers uh, and they're, they're, they come to the Miami airport and you know about 6,000 of them over these few years have family members or, um, you know, uh, vetted caregivers that take possession of them. But for a roughly 8,300 of these kids, they need processing and they need temporary shelter. And so that's where Brian Walsh's organization takes the majority of those 8,300 kids, something like 7,000 or so children. There's other organizations, Protestant organizations, Jewish organizations, and some other child welfare agencies that take uh, custody of the children. Um, but And so for a good portion of those kids, they then spend a matter of months, um, maybe a couple years waiting for their parents. But for some of the children, they end up then leaving Miami and going to other parts of the United States, which then really causes fear in, the parent, in their parents back in Cuba, because their parents had no idea that their kids were going to leave Miami. And they didn't think that this, this whole process would take as long as it ends up taking. Um, but that made the, the rationale more, more sensible. And also the fact that parents were afraid that their kids, especially the boys, would be, you know, conscripted in, in the army and would be, you know, forced into a civil war uh, if things didn't mm -hmm. go the right way. And some of these parents had property or they themselves were part of the anti-Castro underground and they wanted their children, um, you know, far from harm's way, which is, which, which explains, you know, the rationale for why, why would someone put their kids on an airplane and send them to the United States? The fear, I mean, it, you know, I think the fear that is, was so palpable. And when you had, you knew other parents were doing this, uh, it made that choice seem reasonable. We're so going to move on to the, uh, the effect that the U.S. government uh, had on, on this and um, how, U.S. and Cuban relations were at the time. But first, I wanted to ask, how did the U.S. affect this um, transport of, of children? Because I think we heard reports that the U.S. was actually um, 
giving out fake reports in Cuba through radio mm-hmm. about uh, what the Castro regime was actually going to do to 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 the children uh, even before um, the operations took took place. And there's also like a fake law was uh, circulated by uh, Alvaro Fernandez at the time. Yeah, there, so there are fake. Um, it was called the Patria Potestad law that that Castro was going to dispossess parents of their children. That's a big part of it. I mean, this is a time when there's all kinds of messaging happening and the CIA is using, you know, a, a lot of its resources to bring down Castro. Right. The Bay of Pigs invasion fails in April of 1961, that trained exile paramilitary group Cubans were going to come in bring down Castro. And in fact, there was a Cuban exile government waiting in Miami to to then come in after the successful paramilitary operation and then come back to Havana and, you know, reinstate a legitimate Cuban government that was not Fidel Castro's. And none of that happened, right? The Bay of Pigs fails, uh, but the CIA is still, you know, trying to spread propaganda. One of the big questions is how directly how, how direct was the connection between Operation Pedro Pan and the CIA? That's like the, the big question that, that people ask. And, you know, my research and other people that do this research haven't found, um, you know, specific documents connecting uh, the CIA to Operation Pedro Pan. But what I say in my book is that there was a lot of kind of cross-fertilization, right? There were people that were helping to get kids out of Cuba that also they themselves claimed to have been working uh, with the CIA, there was the CIA, you know, was issuing these kinds of, um, um, you know, fake propaganda to scare Cubans into revolt against Castro. So some of that, you know, affected parents' decisions. Um, But the CIA, at least the the way that I conclude this, is is not directly responsible for this. This was the Catholic Church. Um, This was anti-Castro Cubans, right? There's a whole Cuban underground that is manufacturing uh, is is falsifying the paperwork, visa waivers, uh, passports, getting children um, to the airport, and working with airlines, um, working with um, ticket agencies with uh, to get tickets um, for these kids. Um, so there's a there's a robust network um, that involves Cubans and everyday Americans. I mean, the number of people that are you know just going to their jobs in different Florida offices, uh, you know, to to pro- to help process um, these children. It's it's kind of a momentous affair. Uh, there's people that foster these kids. You know, th- these kids are sent to other places in the United States and there are foster, some of them go to orphanages or group homes. Other kids go to foster families, you know, so there, there are Americans that put, you know, that have Cubans in their homes for a period of time and they're reimbursed money. So they're, they're compensated for that foster care um, through, ultimately through the U.S. government. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, the immigration out of Cuba kind of immediately following the revolution and um, did that increase after the, the failed Bay of Pigs invasion? I'm, I'm just trying to get a picture of, was, was, there, was there an idea of the Cuban people following the revolution? Were some of them trying to, to get out immediately following that point and, and were you know, families and kids part of that, that immediate evacuation if there was? Yeah. Uh, your, your questions about the re- the refugee wave. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, not long after 1959, the the initial ca- the initial Cubans to leave were people that were part of the Batista mm. government. I mean, those those were the initial folks and their families because Castro, you know, um, uh, unforgettably, uh, you know, t- had these televised uh, legal proceedings where he would put um, Batista officials kind of on trial. Uh, there were even uh, state state sanctioned executions that that you know people could could watch. So you know if you had any connection to the Batista government, you wanted to get out of Cuba quickly. People um, could and, watch those. Yeah, yeah. Because I saw I saw something like that. Someone's got his head shot, and I didn't. I thought it was archival footage. People watch actually watching that. Yeah, yeah. These were televised. So that you know, um, th- this is. Uh, you know, when you see those and then you have, uh, 
diplomats from Moscow that are coming to Havana and making treat sugar, you know, trade treaties with Havana, then, you know, so people start to see the writing on the wall. And it's, it's actually after the Bay of Pigs, Castro emerges from the Bay of Pigs, not only unscathed, but incredibly popular. And he's able then to declare the revolution is officially socialist. Um, and so, you know, then things, and then more people leave. But yeah, that's, it's around 250,000 people that leave in the first three years, Cubans. Um, and they go mostly to Florida. And so then the U.S. government has to create a kind of Cuban refugee center in Miami to process all these Cubans. Although there are Cubans that go elsewhere, too. They go to New Jersey. They go to New York. They go to California. It's not only Miami, but obviously the, the, the vast majority of these folks end up in South Florida. Um, and, and yeah, that's the first major wave. Um, but then airspace is closed after the Cuban Missile Crisis. But then in 1965... Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson and Fidel Castro agree to allow a series of flights between countries. These are called freedom flights that happened between 1965 and 1973. And priority is given to parents who are trying to uh, um, reunite with their, their children. So more Cubans are able to come during those years. And then there are Cubans who are that come to the U.S. via, um, you know, a third a third country. And then there's just a lot of Cubans that go elsewhere. I mean, the other part of this story that hasn't really been written is how many of these children went to Spain. You know, a similar parallel program was in Spain as as parents were trying to get their kids out, and if uh, the U.S. wasn't available, they sent them elsewhere. I was wondering if you could tell us about the how the Cuban government w was reacting to this or their knowledge of this and, and just what was kind of the, the boots on the, the ground uh, requirements to, in order to get children out and, and to get them on these flights and, and, and to get them to America. How, how kind of known was that amongst the, the Cuban authorities and, and how did that kind of play out in, in the actual um, getting children onto the plane? You know, it seems obvious that the Cuban government would know this is happening, that this really couldn't be as clandestine mm -hmm. as people were saying it was. Um, but what, you know, some of the folks that in Cuba that comment on this actually uh, say that a couple of things were going on. First of all, Cuba had bigger problems than to worry about this. Um, and that it, it became sort of a, a second or third tier priority to deal with parents sending their, their kids. So it wasn't as important as some of the other things that were happening. Second, because there were charges against the Cuban government that the, this new government was going to dispossess parents of their children and, and basically take parental control out of the hands of parents, that to prevent parents from sending their kids would have legitimated that claim. So mm -hmm. if so, if parents want to do this, they are part of the masses. Remember, the Cuban government is now um, making the, the exiles into pariahs. You know, they are called by the Cuban government. People that are leaving Cuba are called gusanos, which means worms in Spanish. So, you know, if you're leaving Cuba, you're turned into kind of an enemy of the state. So if these parents want to send their kids, that's up to them and they have the freedom to do so. But what the Cuban government also does is a campaign of the family. And if you look at Cuban media in, in 1960 and 1961, it is pictures of the state, you know, taking care of families, taking care of children, opening state-run daycares. Uh, so that mothers can work, you know, so you can work and you can be a mother. Um, it, it's, it's, it's sort of showing that this new revolutionary government is going to take care of the family in a way that a capitalist or a bourgeois uh, government uh, like the United States can't or like a Cuba under Batista couldn't. So it's very much, you know, they are, they are uh, <laughs> waging a, a public relations campaign in favor of the family uh, and giving parents the opportunity to do what they want with their children was part of that. Well, weren't the first few um, Operation Page Japan members like uh, underground anti-Batista people, anti, 
Castro people at, at the time. So wouldn't it be that the government didn't know at, at first, right? Because they probably weren't, weren't enough, and then it then they just start to learn about it, or yeah. I mean, I don't. It's a great question. Like, when does it become obvious? My sense is that the heyday of this happens in 1961 um, to early 1962. Um, but again, we know now. You know, the Castro government is doing all kinds of things to, to legitimate itself, including right discussing the possibility of nuclear capable missiles on the island with uh, you know Soviet Premier Khrushchev. You know, so if those are the conversations that are taking place in Havana, again, my sense is that the issue of children goes down. And, and what you do is you try to, as long as that exodus isn't uh, too great, that you can wage this kind of public relations campaign showing how the revolutionary state is going to take care of families, including children, like never before. And, you know, the people that go will go. Um but uh, yeah, I think like most of these children, and the thing is children kept coming after 1962. You know, the Operation Pedro Pan as a term actually refers to the years 1960 to 1962. But, you know, the Cuban, the Cuban children's program lasted until the 1970s. And Father Walsh uh, was, was um, you know, his organization, the Catholic Welfare Bureau was taking care of kids though their numbers were greatly reduced by the 1970s, but taking care of kids, you know, until the late seventies. What was the uh, American sort of reception to the possibility of, of adults either coming with the children or just the general, general sort of immigration policy towards Cubans wanting to leave America? And what sort of door was open, open to people who are wanting to leave either with the children or, or in a sort of separate plan um, to eventually meet up with the children. How, how receptive was America to that? Or were they, was it a door not open to them? No, it was. So this is part of this story is, is Cuban exceptionalism and how Cubans become a group of immigrant or a group of exiles that enjoy rights and privileges as newcomers to the United States, unlike any other group. Uh, you know, once Cuba and the United States break off diplomatic ties, uh, the, uh, the administration of John F. Kennedy then uh, puts in a, an embargo on, on Cuba. But also simultaneously, the State Department makes for a kind of exceptional immigrant sta status for Cubans. They're, they're awarded entry as parolees is the, is the term, which I think is actually levied by the Department of Justice. If I'm remembering this correct, I might be wrong about this. Essentially, Cubans could come. If, if they got to American territory, they would be ad admitted as refugees and they could become permanent residents within a year. And from there, um, citizens. So there is, uh, the US government is also issuing uh, payments to refugees. They're giving them job assistance, education, medical care. Um, but, and, and incidentally, it's just a side story. This becomes contentious, this, this um, um, uh, government, uh, these, these government payments to Cuban refugees become contentious for, for certain Americans, particularly African-Americans in Florida, who uh, are, you know, welfare recipients as are other low income Americans. And th this group of people is saying, why are Cuban refugees getting paid more in their monthly assistance than, you know, uh, American citizens on welfare? So um, there's, you know, these the Cubans ruffle feathers in a variety <laughs> of ways. But to answer your question, yeah, it's an exceptional um, immigra immigration status that Cubans are, are, are uh, given, um, which actually continues until the Obama administration. You know, once the U.S. and Cuba normalize relations again under Barack Obama several years ago, then some of those policies were were changed. Um, but it was if you could get to the U.S., you were you were then put into channels that had assistance as well as a legal way for you to to stay here. So my next question was actually going to be what you just, you just touched upon, which was the actual impact 
for American, I suppose specifically Florida and Miami, which is where the majority of, of immigrants were, were, were. How did that impact um, the societies and, and areas of, of, of cities and of, of states that they were going to? What was the reaction? You, you mentioned about some African-Americans. What was the sort of reaction overall um, from these these cities and, and from the population to this new wave of of people and specifically of children coming into these communities? Well, it was mixed, right? So you have to put yourself back in the early 1960s where America is in a Cold War posture. And part of this Cold War America involves combating the Soviet Union. And what Americans are telling themselves are, you know, America is better than the Soviet Union because we are um, God-fearing. There's a huge Christian, Judeo-Christian element to this nationalism in the Cold War. Um, Because we are an abundant society, we have the freedom to consume, right? There's a consumerist element of this ideology. But it's also about accepting um, that the world's needy. And even Kennedy, President Kennedy, made repeated Uh, speeches about the importance of accepting not just Cuban refugees, but the world's refugees. Remember, this is like a post-World War II remnant, right? That that refugees from Europe, um, refugees from Asia, and, and, and refugees from like Hungary in 1956, there was the Hungarian Revolution, and 35,000 Hungarians came to the United States. That moment actually was the model for the Cubans, right? Let's do for the Cubans what we did for the Hungarians. The difference was there were many more Cubans that came and they sort of overwhelmed South Florida, which which is why Cubans were then resettled, um, children included. So it was a test. It was seen as a test of American democracy, but also American plurality, American tolerance, which is why the, the, the issue of the civil rights movement is so important. America was soul searching, right, as Martin Luther King Jr. was making his name as people were boycotting buses, as there were lunch counter sit-ins, in come these Cubans that don't quite make racial sense in this black, white, divided America. And so the test of America, this new America of racial tolerance, at least this America that's trying, that's moving that direction, Cubans then are part of that test. And so, you know, there are Americans who are critical Right. These Cubans are coming and they're, you know, uh, they're taking our jobs or they're the children are loud. They're, you know, what what about the insistence from Castro that started coming in the 70s and 80s that uh, Cuban people who are leaving are actually like criminals and exiles and things like that? Did that did it all affect the impression of, of Cubans in America and Miami? And things? Not at that time. That's going to happen later with the Mariel uh, generation of 1980. Mm-hmm. These early Cubans, you know, are coming and they are they're working in whatever jobs they can get. Some of them are doctors. Some of them are lawyers. Some of them are accountants. You know, they are from the kind of professional. Many of them are from the professional classes. Uh, and so then they show up in the United States and will do the jobs that they can get um, and now and compete for those jobs, you know, with other other folks, which is part of why some people, some Americans resist uh, their coming. But overall, but overall, there's there's an acceptance and there's a realization that to accept Cubans is to make good on America's promise of sanctuary and freedom. And ultimately, it's part of a Cold War responsibility. At what point did this become? sort of public knowledge of the Petropan um, operation? Um, was it during the 1960s or was it, was it later that this became something that was made aware to Cuban and American populations? Well, I have to tell you, I mean, we're in 2022 and I'm, you know, I tell people what I've written and I talk and it's amazing how many people outside of Miami (laughs) have never heard of this. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, if you go to Miami, everyone knows of Pedro Pan, (laughs) but, but outside of Miami in the United States and elsewhere, this is people are like, what, wait, what happened? They did what? (laughs) So I, I, I still feel like a lot of people don't know about this, but 
to answer your question more directly, it was meant to be kept under wraps. So um, Father Walsh, Brian Walsh, tried to do this quietly in a secretive manner to, to protect the children. But word got out. Journalists got wind of this, um, I think, as early as 1961 um, and, uh, and, and began, began publishing articles about you know, th these children. And initially it was called Operation Exodus. That was the, the first term that was used, I believe by the Miami Herald to uh, describe this phenomenon of, of unaccompanied children leaving Cuba. And then that was changed to Operation Pedro Pan. Pedro of course is Peter in Spanish. And so Peter Pan being the story about a boy who could fly, for some reason that was the moniker that was levied by journalists. Coincidentally, the, one of the first children that came to Brian Walsh's office, and he would end up telling this story for years, right? This, this made his career, it made his identity, uh, was about a brother and sister. Uh, the brother's name was Pedro and, and didn't, have, uh, didn't have his parents with him. And he, you know, so he came to uh, the Catholic Church in Miami looking for help and so so brian walsh tells the story that one of the first children's name was pedro although that doesn't appear to be the reason why this was called operation pedro pan but in in cuba uh, to the extent that it was known there were punishments for people involved weren't they like uh, uh, yeah prison sentences yeah there were um and uh you know there were some of these folks were absolutely found guilty of this but just crimes against the state one of these people, Polita Grau, who was the sister of um, Mongo Grau, these were the niece and nephew of one of the former presidents of, of Cuba, Ramon Grau San Martin, who was president of Cuba in uh, the 19, in the 1930s. And uh, his niece and nephew were, you know, large figures in the anti-Castro resistance, and they both got prison sentences of 15 years. The sister, Polita Grau, for attempted assassination or for being part of an assassination plot against Fidel Castro. So, yes, there were people that were part of Operation Pedro Pan that also um, got prison sentences, although I'm not sure those sentences were specifically for the movement of children. They may have been other crimes against the state. I was wondering if you could um, tell us about the, the, the legacy of this operation in, in Cuba and just how it's viewed today in comparison to, um, you know, how it would have been viewed at the time and, and how, how the, the, the movement of children from Cuba to America is, is viewed both in, in Cuba itself and the sort of Cuban-American community. Well, you can imagine very differently. I mean, the Cubans and the Cuban government, you know, any news on Operation Pedro Pan is one of tragedy, right? That the Cuban parents were so misguided and were so afraid that they sent their children and that separation from children, the separation of children and parents is one of the, the worst things that, that hmm. anyone experienced. So from a Cuban side, this is tragedy. When you talk to Pedro Pans, however, overwhelmingly, um, they are happy this happened, right? They, they cannot imagine having grown up in Cuba. And they say that their parents did the right thing. They, their parents made the ultimate sacrifice. And when you ask them, you know, could you have ever done this with your own children? No one has told me yes. So it's this interesting psychological dimension. What is it to be thankful for something you can never do yourself? So yes, it was tragic. Yes, it was traumatic, but ultimately they benefited from it. And some of the most conservative voices in the Cuban American population come from the Pedro Pans in Miami. My book, however, shows that that story, that narrative is complicated and that there are people that see this history in a different way and experience it differently. One of the big questions, for instance, is who goes back to Cuba? There are Pedro Pans who have gone back to Cuba and get a validation from that. They go to the house where they grew up and, and knock on the door and whoever's living there, you know, if they open it and let them in, they are overcome with memories and grief, but also a sense of affirmation, like a completing the circle. But for a lot of Pedro Pans they, and, and, and Cubans in general, they won't go back. Uh, one Pedro Pan, Jose, told me he will never go back to Cuba because that would tarnish the legacy of his father. He never saw his father again after he left Cuba. And to go back would to betray 
what his father did, but also it betrays his identity as an exile. He explained to me, I can only go back to Cuba when the political circumstances that caused my removal from Cuba change. So for me to go back is a betrayal of my exile identity and my father. So that's a, that's a, a huge um, uh, split in, in the community. But I think on the whole, you know, you talk to Pedro Pans and they say that this was the right thing to do and they're happy their parents did it. Do you think this was the reason for the whole, uh, the impression that the Cuban Miami population had during the Ilian Gonzalez uh, issue um, in, the, in, the, in the late 90s where the, the boy had uh, come with his mother to America, she had drowned and, and people in Miami wanted to keep him, but his father was in Cuba. Yeah, this is one of the epilogues of this story that's ironic. So Elian Gonzalez shows up in, I think, around Thanksgiving time in, I think, 1999. I think you're right, the late 90s. He's a six-year-old boy. Everyone else on that raft had drowned, including his mother. And so he shows up and is um, taken into custody by a relative of his, but his father's back in Cuba. And there's a fight that ensues where, you know, the Cuban-American community of Miami says, Elian needs to stay here. We're going to, he's going to be free here. We need, and they petition Congress to make a special law to allow him to be here. And ultimately this went up to the, to the Bill Clinton uh, presidency, you know, to the White House, what to do with Elian Gonzalez. And what the Clinton presidency decided, Clinton decided and his attorney general at the time, Janet Reno, who was from where, Dade County, Florida, Miami originally, decided to side with the thinking that the child would be best returned to Cuba because the child should be with his father. The irony of this is that, you know, the Cubans and Pedro Pans included that fought for Elian Gonzalez to stay are basically fighting against the right of the parents, right? The very right of patria potestad, which is the, the right of parental jurisdiction over the children was the reason their parents sent them to the United States. They were essentially taking away that right or wanting to take that way that right away from Elian's father by wanting Elian to stay in the United States as, as an exile, which is one of the ironies uh, with that story in light of this Pedro Pan history. Uh, that, that's, that's really fascinating. And um, in terms of other immigrants, how, how the Cuban um immigrants to Miami and uh, the, the generations afterwards, how, how do they see other new immigrants from South America and, and other parts of the Americans ca- coming in? Well, within Cuban America in Miami, there's definitely generational changes. So you mentioned, you know, the kind of criminals and, and, and sort of um, nefarious elements of Cuban society that will come later uh, and and you you talk to older Cuban Americans and they sometimes distance themselves from the newer arrivals, um, saying that the newer arrivals are more desperate. Some of them are criminals, unlike the first generation Cuban Americans from the early 60s who are hardworking anti-communist people. But you're right. There are other groups, Venezuelans, you know, and Nicaraguans, uh, cent- other Central Americans that are now making the Latino identity of Miami and de-emphasizing the, the Cuban part, although Cubans still are the overwhelming majority Latino identity of, of South Florida. Um, but those Cuban Americans then become powerful spokespeople and are able to direct, um, you know, certain elements of foreign policy uh, and, and can put pressure you know, on um, Washington, D.C. to admit, you know, uh, Venezuelans, but also to, um, you know, to really change the, the dynamic of, of the, the debate. You know, this happened actually recently with Ron DeSantis, who is the governor of Florida. Ron DeSantis, some of your listeners may know, is seen as a one of the front runners of the mm-hmm. Republican um, nomination for the 2024 presidential election. He's posturing himself that way. And he also is becoming um, very public about his discontent, as other Republicans are, with the Joe Biden um, immigration 
policy, right? The Republicans are trying to beat up the Democrats saying that the southern border continues to be broken, the immigration policy is broken. And so DeSantis a few weeks ago famously sent some migrants from Florida, flew them to Martha's Vineyard, you know, as a kind of show of refusal to just take in more migrants. Well, some people, Cubans included, Pedro Pants included, said, well, look, you know, once upon a time we came desperate and um, needed refuge and needed assistance, and we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss some of these folks. DeSantis held a press uh, hearing, um, a press conference in which he invited some Pedro Pans to the press conference to act as spokespeople for why this generation of migrants coming to America, needing safety, security, et cetera, are different from the generation of the early 60s in, in trying to differentiate, you know, different generations of, of refugees or of migrants, you know, as they're called today. Um, the Catholic Church, incidentally, in Miami sort of went after DeSantis as he was closing some of the shelters, making that same argument, you know, that we accepted kids back in the early, Cuban children back in the early 60s, we should accept these children today. So DeSantis was kind of put in a position where he had to defend himself against the Catholic Church, and he used Pedro Pans, who are now in their 60s and 70s, uh, to do it. So one question I did have, which was... The, how important did you do you think the involvement of the Catholic Church and, and some of those those Catholic uh, priests that you, you talked about was that an important factor in how the American government and, and those involved both on the ground and, and, and in government sort of dealt with the 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 idea of taking in children or did that not have any impact at all? Do you think? Part of what I say in my book is that the Catholic Church is changing immensely in both countries. For a long time in American history, Catholics were vilified. I mean, if you go back to the mm -hmm. 1800s, there's a lot of anti-Catholic racism. But after World War II, Catholics, especially second and third generation Catholics, have a newfound uh, ascendancy, right? They have a newfound respect that part of the growth of American suburbs, for example, and the growth of a more affluent post-war society involves the spread of churches and synagogues and the Catholic church among them. So it's no accident, for example, that John F. Kennedy is the first Catholic president at a time when the Catholic church in South Florida is welcoming these hundreds of thousands of, of, of future parishioners, right? It's not, not that every Cuban that shows up is Catholic. There are Protestant Cubans, there are, um, there are Jewish Cubans, but overwhelmingly it's a, it's a Catholic population. So now you have the opportunity for the Catholic church to kind of, uh, to use this population to grow its own credentials. And it's when Miami becomes a diocese, you know, 10 years after this, 1968, it will become an archdiocese. So the Catholic church is gaining respect in a new way in this country. And in Cuba, it's falling apart. Castro is forcing nuns and priests into exile. The Catholic Church is being very public in its contempt for Castro and for communism. And in fact, the church is saying you have to choose Rome or Moscow. And so it really ups the timber of, of uh, debate and volatility. Uh, and the Catholic Church in Cuba is just eviscerated. Um, mm -hmm. And it will take a long time to, to rebuild that. And so uh, the Catholic Church in the U.S. takes advantage of that. Um, but clearly, you know, Catholics, Cuban Catholics are learning about uh, some of these opportunities with their children through their churches, through their schools. And they themselves are coming, you know, they're Cubans who are coming as Catholics that are not feeling welcomed in Cuba anymore. So the final question I had done for today um, was around how Cuba is seen today by Americans, the perception of Cuba today compared to the 60s, obviously different times. Uh, I was going to say we're no longer in a Cold War, although maybe that's not accurate anymore. Um, how is America viewing Cuba today? And obviously with the death of Castro, and as you said, with some normalization of relations under Obama, how, how are... How are we? How are Americans and the American public and the American media viewing Castro? Uh, sorry, how are they viewing Cuba, and how has that sort of transitioned over the, the past decades? 
I think if you went around the country, the United States, and asked Americans what they thought of Cuba, most Americans say, you know, they don't understand the the continued, uh, you know, um, the, the the continued antagonism. Um, I think most cute, most Americans say they can't wait to go to Cuba. They want to see it. It they mm-hmm. everyone has a story about Cuba through their families. They have grandparents that went in the fifth. Just there's this there's just this uh, just this kind of obsession. People want to see it. However, they're in a very specific Cuban American enclave, the majority of which is in Florida, although it's not only there. This continues to be a hot button item. And because Florida is so important in presidential elections over the past several years, the matter of Cuba remains uh, a delicate one for whoever's in the White House. Now what you see in Cuba is the the rise of discontent. You have uh, social movements that have been kind of going off and on for the past couple of years hastened probably by the pandemic, but certainly the Cuban population is experiencing um, a a source of of stress and neediness that hasn't been there um, for some time. Incidentally, the majority of people, not the majority, but a good, a significant number of of migrants trying to cross the US-Mexico border are Cubans who are now not able to enjoy the entitlements of earlier generations. So Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, and Cubans are a growing population of the thousands of people that are attempting to enter the the United States at the southern border. Um, So Cubans are are legally identified as something different in 2022 than they were in 1962. But I would say it's one of puzzlement for most Americans. Why are Havana and Washington still in this delicate confrontation? Although we do have now diplomatic um, communication and it's still not uh, a comfortable relationship. Well, um, Toby Vaughn, I don't know if you've got any final questions for John or if you just want to uh, close up there. Uh, no, I, I don't have a lot of questions. But no, it's, it's a really interesting book that you've, you've written. And uh, and for me, I think recently I've been thinking about, because um, there's an exhibition on, on women uh, who were actors in the before the uh, the Iranian revolution and uh, how what happened to them and like in the in popular memory we t- we tend like things like Argo we th- tend to think about the Iranian revolution kind of positively a little bit and given my own politics I think about the Cuban revolution quite positively but stories like this um you know they they pre- present an interesting mix and this, this it just makes you feel like there's so many sides so many human stories so much tragedy and like you know like domestic human pain that happens when you you have a, a father who uh, takes one child to spain and, and the other child to america and the child dies in spain and the, the one in america you, you might never get to see him again it's like it's yeah there's so much so much there so much like social history there that on both sides that that is really complicated and I, I i find that really 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 interesting and that i think was really motivating my first book the ways that cuba and the revolution have been appropriated in the american cultural imagination i mean this is cuba in many ways is where modern american empire begins right with the intervention in the war of independence in cuba with the explosion of the USS Maine in 1898, which becomes then the the event to allow President McKinley to send troops to intervene to to, to Cuba to defeat the Spanish. I mean, Cuba operates in a particular way as a set of symbols. And for the American left, absolutely. Che Guevara, the revolution, socialism, were seen uh, in a positive light. Like here's what a society can do, anti-imperialist politics, state educate, right? The, the, you can do, we can do better. But 
for another side, it's everything that is wrong right, with the world, right? That this is a, you know, a part of the red menace, 90 miles from the United States. Cuba becomes, you know, an embodiment of Moscow and something that is threatening. And of course, in a real way in 1962 uh, with the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I'm interested, you know, that first book that I wrote is really about the manifold ways that Cuba just functions in an exceptional, particular way in the Americas from, an, from a U.S. perspective, unlike any other country in this hemisphere, right? Cuba is able to do to the United States what no other American republic was able to do, right? It's, it's the Monroe Doctrine, you know? And so it, it is an exceptional entity that has a fascinating and problematic <laughs> history, um, but it's one that's occupied my attention for, for many years now. Well, John, um, we really appreciate you coming on the show today. It was a fascinating conversation, and um, I've learned a lot about Cuban history in just uh, just an hour of talking, so I, I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you all very much. Uh, I wish you lots of luck with this, and um, it was I was glad to be a part of it. Uh, from John, from Toby, from Vaughn, and myself, Simon, thank you very much for listening, and we'll have another episode for you in the near future. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.